Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore Martin Heidegger's great philosophical classic, Being in Time. With me is philosopher Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, and a recently published anthology of essays on the great philosophers of history called Lovers of Sophia. Jason is a faculty member at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Welcome, Jason. Great to be with you again, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, being in time, and uh, the name Martin Heidegger, I think practically everybody who has a college degree has, has heard of this book and has heard of Heidegger, but I, I would venture to say very few people really understand uh, what Heidegger was saying. I know it's very dense and difficult to uh, comprehend, uh, and yet it's been enormously influential. It has. I would say it's the most revolutionary philosophical text of the 20th century. Which is saying quite a bit. Yeah. Heidegger wrote this book, as I recall, in 1927. That's right. He was about 38 years old. Mm -hmm. It was a time, uh, he, he was writing in Germany, uh, 1927 would have been uh, the Weimar era. That's right. A time of great social experimentation. Indeed, and I think uh, his work is one example of that experimentation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's dig into it. What what in the world is uh, he saying? I mean, when I think of these concepts, being and time, they're so broad, it's almost as if there's nothing to say because they're such large concepts. Well, being uh, is existence. Mm -hmm. and. Um, there are people who have argued that Heidegger is the starting point for existentialism. That's questionable because the existentialist school, Sartre and his disciples and so forth, I think misunderstands some of Heidegger's fundamental concepts. But at any rate, being has to do with existence. And uh, time in this case has to do with the radical historicity of human existence, the fact that human existence is radically historical. That's the core thesis of mm -hmm. the book. In, in other words, uh, we all are born into um, a world in which we uh, inherit a history that's given to us. That's right, um, but it's an even more radical claim than that because uh, science, the various sciences and um, you know technological development and so forth are all human endeavors. Mm -hmm. So by uh, arguing that our existence is radically historical. Heidegger is also claiming that structures of scientific knowledge and the discoveries that they afford us about the nature of the cosmos and so forth are radically historical as well. Mm -hmm. And they're subject to changes from one epoch to another. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, is, is a fair view of history. Historians often think in terms of epochs. Uh, historians do, mm -hmm. but scientists tend not to. Mm. And the analytic so-called philosophers 
who have um, reconciled themselves to being handmaidens of the established empirical sciences reject the view that uh, the, well, let's put it this way, they take the view that the structure of the cosmos is ahistorical, that there is a fundamental structure to nature mm -hmm. uh, that can be reflected in the mirror of the human mind, which is objectively existent and ahistorical. Heidegger challenges that claim. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, the Pythagoreans or the Platonists would say that uh, a perfect circle is a perfect circle no matter uh, when you live. That's right. That's right. And it's that kind of thinking that's prevailed at least implicitly in the empirical sciences. I don't mm -hmm. think largely most scientists are conscious of the fact that they're uh, some kind of bizarre implicit Platonists. See, because you know, Platonists are idealists and they're materialists, mm -hmm. but you're right that on some level, at least in a mathematical sense, they are Platonists. And most mathematicians are Platonists, to my understanding. And Heidegger's thought, uh, although in some ways it delineates unchanging characteristics of human experience, mm -hmm. I would say is a confrontation with the kind of Platonism that's mm -hmm. predominant in the sciences. Well, it, it, I gather that Heidegger's purpose in writing Being and Time was to kind of get underneath the historical trends and, and find principles that uh, were even more basic than history. Is that right? That's true. Uh, that's true. But see, when I say that his thought confronts a kind of tacit Platonism in the sciences, I mean to suggest that, in a way, he's a, a pragmatist. Mm -hmm. um, being in time's point of departure is an analysis of uh, different types of human behavior. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with um, objects and our relationship with people. Mm -hmm. so these are two different basic categories of human behavior. Yep. And in terms of our relationship with objects, Heidegger draws a distinction between uh, relationship to a thing that is merely present at hand and our relationship to something, usually a tool, that's ready to hand. Mm -hmm. In the case where something is ready to hand, uh, like a hammer okay. that's for nailing, you should not be conscious, really, of how that tool is performing its function. It should be so integrated into the activity of hammering that um, it performs its function seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And only if the tool breaks down mm -hmm. do you become aware of its uh, structure, that it's made up of various uh, components and parts. Mm -hmm. And in that moment of breakdown, the tool goes from something ready to hand for a certain activity uh, to being an object that's present at hand. And mm -hmm. Heidegger thinks that this kind of breakdown scenario operating on a societal scale mm -hmm. during the Renaissance mm -hmm. is what led to our objectification of the world in general. Hmm. As increasingly complex instruments were designed, mm -hmm. where there was more of a possibility for breakdown mm -hmm. and a need to reconstruct them in more complex ways, we began to see the entire cosmos as a machinery mm -hmm. uh, that um, it consists of, you know, gear works and uh, whose operative laws are right. like those of a machine. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very interesting uh, because uh, one of my mentors, uh, to 
throw this back at you a little bit. Arthur M. Young uh, invented a machine. He invented the helicopter, the, the first commercially licensed helicopter, the Bell helicopter. And he said, well, it's very interesting that these philosophers think of the universe as a great machine because there never existed a machine that didn't have a creator. That's right. And, you know, this is, of course, the, the type of thinking that led to deism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that, that deism, the idea of an architect, grand architect of the universe, yeah. of the machinery of the cosmos, mm -hmm. is what underlies something as uh, fundamental to us as the political ideology of the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. or the, the French Constitution, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. Mm -hmm. So... That's an important idea, which Heidegger is challenging, because mm -hmm. people are not helicopters. Right. And uh, so that brings us to the delineation of uh, the types of relationships that we have with others mm -hmm. rather than with objects. Mm -hmm. But just to recapitulate, what, what you're saying is Heidegger is challenging the notion that nature itself is mechanistic. He says this, this is a mistake we make because we project our analysis of tools and technology onto all of nature. That's right. The breakdown of increasingly complex tools mm -hmm. and our uh, flipping from uh, an implicit, embodied relation to tools to a distant, observational, objectifying attitude toward the broken tool as a mere object mm -hmm. is the um, catalyst mm -hmm. for our objectification of the cosmos and nature as a whole. And, and in 1927, to come up with that idea must have been uh, challenging the, the very structure of society because that was a time when railroads and airplanes and, I mean, technology was uh, everywhere. It was a very exciting time for people in terms of all the new technologies that were being introduced, electric lighting and, and so on. Well, it has a, you know, it is revolutionary, but partly because it has another uh, very significant implication, which we can only really properly appreciate after discussing some other fundamental concepts in Heidegger. But just to foreshadow it, uh, the implication is that crafts activity, the mm -hmm. production of tools, mm -hmm. which goes further back than uh, our history of man, mm -hmm is more fundamental than scientific theorization. It's perhaps one of the defining features of a human being is that we use tools. Right. So Heidegger thinks that a change in our relationship to technology mm -hmm. is what led to modern theoretical science. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that the cosmos as it's comprehended by the paradigm of, uh, you know, Descartes, mm -hmm. by the Cartesian paradigm, is not an objective reality. It's the outcome of a, of a social and psychological change mm -hmm. uh, that, that ultimately has to do with a change in our crafts production, our relationship to, to meaningful things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then he also talks about our relationship with other people. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the disastrous consequences of this... Um, objectification of nature as a whole is the objectification of our fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Heidegger it distinguishes between an authentic and an inauthentic rapport with others. Mm -hmm. 
Generally speaking, we function uh, as part of mass man. We um, are um, reiterations of prevailing common opinion and prejudice on various subjects. Mm-hmm. We uh, give voice to already established conventions and cliches. Yeah, I think that's it's probably fair to say that even the most advanced thinkers among us uh, hold many conventional ideas without question. Yes, and Heidegger saw the advent of, of um, uh, mediums of mass communication as intensifying this phenomenon. In mm-hmm. his time, it was uh, mass printing of newspapers and the advent of radio. Yep. Uh, in our time, it's uh, not just television, but also the internet. Right. And so there is this inauthentic relationship to the other mm-hmm. in terms of the expectations and demands of the anonymous mass. Mm. He calls this das man, mm-hmm. the man, yeah. uh, which you can see whenever someone says, one ought not to do such and such, mm-hmm. or they say that. Yeah. Oh, who is this they? Who is this one that's always dictating to mm-hmm. you? This is the mass man within oneself, mm-hmm. which largely goes unquestioned. Yeah. Now, Heidegger isn't so naive as to think that we can um, definitively surmount and overcome this um, relationship to the other in terms of the collective of society. Mm-hmm. But he does think if that's the only relationship you have to, to another person, including your friends or, or those who are you know, most intimately close to you, then you're living inauthentically. Mm. And what it would mean to live an authentic life would be to heed the call of your own conscience. And mm-hmm. this idea of a call of conscience is mm-hmm. also uh, as a counterpart to the idea of the they or dasman, another fundamental concept in Heidegger's thought. Now, now this reminds me a bit of uh, Colin Wilson's uh, great philosophical work, uh, The Outsider, in, in which he suggests uh, that there's something very important about people who are alienated from uh, the, the conventions of society. Well, The Outsider is a classic of existentialism. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Colin Wilson later wrote a book called The New Existentialism. Yeah. And um, so existentialism is a school of thought that uh, ultimately originates in, in Heidegger's mm-hmm. uh, work and specifically in Being in Time, mm-hmm. which um, describes its own project as an existential analysis. Mm-hmm. So one of the features of this existential analysis is the identification of conscience, personal mm-hmm. conscience. Mm-hmm. And we become most acutely aware of our personal conscience in what he calls a being towards death. When our very existence is threatened, when we're faced with an existential threat, uh, we are thrown back upon our own conscience. Mm -hmm. And we realize, hopefully, if we don't avert this um, call of conscience, if we don't try to silence our conscience or lose ourselves in one or another form of distraction, whether it's entertainmentism or the dogmas of a certain religion, Uh, In those moments, we realize our radical differentiation from anyone else who um, can't decide for us Mm -hmm. how we're going to face that acute crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note that when Heidegger talks about a being towards death, he's not talking about facing uh, the cessation of function of our biological organism. He's talking about 
that nothingness that, let's say, Gautama Buddha describes as the disintegration of the personality, <laughs> that might come only after many lifetimes. Mm -hmm. What he's trying to point to is the essential finitude of human existence, mm -hmm. that uh, our existence is finite. We are not these eternally abiding, um, self-identical platonic souls. We are beings that uh, are fundamentally conditioned by both a personal history and a social history. And our scope of possible action uh, is to some extent predefined by um, the experiences that we undergo from birth, but also by the heritage of our particular culture. I mean, it's, it's part of existential philosophy that each person has to confront their own death. And, and Heidegger is saying something a little different than that, though. Well, what they're saying is a certain interpretation of what Heidegger forwards in Being in Time, mm -hmm. uh, which is that in an acute crisis yeah. um, where we sense an existential threat, yeah. where we sense more than the annihilation of our physical bodies or the cessation of the function of our organism, where we sense the potential annihilation of our persona, mm -hmm. uh, we experience a fundamental anxiety or angst right. that we're generally covering over. Mm -hmm. And we're generally covering over it by um, tacitly accepting the dictates of mass man. Mm -hmm. Well, they, those dictates can be very comforting in, in the face of death. That's right. I mean, that's why we have uh, religions, you know, something they say it's for uh, baptism, marriage, and a funeral. Yes, and, you know, one of the differences between Heidegger's understanding of existential angst mm -hmm. and, what, uh, and, and being towards death mm -hmm. and what the existentialist school later made out of it, particularly what someone like Jean-Paul Sartre made out of it, mm -hmm. is that unlike Sartre's notion that uh, personal freedom is unconditioned yeah. and that one can radically define one's own way of life mm -hmm. as if from out of a vacuum and by fiat, yeah. Heidegger understands that even the authentic individual mm -hmm. has to define his ethos in the context of concrete possibilities provided by a historical heritage. And so it's a question of making a historical heritage one's own, mm -hmm. appropriating a history in a way that is dynamic and that revitalizes it, mm -hmm. uh, rather than relating to history as a static uh, inherited tradition. In other words, if, if I were to try to define myself in a way that had no relationship to previous uh, historical precedents of any sort, uh, I could only be you know, doing so in a very superficial way. That's right. And it's not just a question of um, requiring previous historical precedents, uh, for someone in your position, for example, to define yourself with respect to the possibilities inherent in the um, cultural sphere of Chinese civilization mm -hmm. is inauthentic. Yep. You do not have an own most relation to that civilization. Own most? You don't have a, a, a direct yeah. relationship to that particular heritage. Right. It doesn't make sense for you to make that your own right. and to dynamically appropriate its possibilities. That doesn't mean that one can't draw from more than one tradition or yeah. heritage, mm -hmm. but one has to, in a, in a tangible uh, way, 
be situated at a place where that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? So a person can be an inheritor of two distinct traditions. To an extent, that's true of myself. Well, yes, I, I, you even have two passports. That's true, I do. But uh, here's how I view that, and maybe you can reflect back to me what, what Heidegger might say. I believe that every human being on the planet today, whether they're uh, from Africa or South America or Europe or Antarctica, inherits all of human culture, inherits global culture at this point, that uh, it's available to everyone. If I want to study you know, Taoist philosophy, or uh, if I would prefer to study you know, Zulu traditions, they're available to me. Heidegger would see that as an inauthentic relationship to various heritages. Uh -huh. um, but ultimately, he wouldn't disagree with you mm -hmm. that something like that is possible now and only now for the first time. Mm -hmm. If you asserted that about people in prior epochs, he would take serious exception right. to it. The reason that it's changing now is because of the inframing or encompassing of the entire planet and all of its cultures by Western science and technology. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that um, our mechanistic technological science has shattered the worlds of meaning of various cultures across the entire planet, mm -hmm. uh, what we make out of those ruins, mm -hmm. to an extent, is something that we're all challenged with. We already implicitly are living in uh, a global context in a way that we never were in prior epochs. Mm -hmm. But to get more clear about um, what an authentic relationship to a heritage is, yeah. It's important to broach the subject of a distinction between three types of relation to history that mm -hmm. we see at the core of being in time. Okay. Shall we go into that? Sure. So Heidegger differentiates uh, an antiquarian relationship to history from a critical rapport with a particular heritage mm -hmm. and a monumental or monumentalist history. Uh -huh. So an antiquarian relationship to history is basically that of a conservative. Yeah. This is uh, when somebody always looks back to the past as a golden age mm -hmm. and is trying to hang on to fragments of a type of society that once was. Um, the most extreme form of this is the Hindu conception of cyclical time mm -hmm. and world ages, yep. where we're declining from a bygone golden age. Mm -hmm. And you can you can never really make any progress. Uh, the world will end and the cycle will start over again, mm -hmm. but our best days are always behind us. Mm -hmm. And even though that's the most extreme form of the view, you also see it in any kind of conservatism. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, you know, let's say, well, in a way, make America great again mm -hmm. is an antiquarianist slogan. Yeah. So the fundamental or diametric opposite of this kind of relationship to history is what Heidegger calls critical history. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that uh, every social structure, every ideal is the product of uh, oppressive power relations that formed in a particular place and time. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is to deconstruct uh, these ideas to reveal that uh, underpinning them is some unjust social relation 
um, that's uh, unjustly been assumed as legitimate, mm. whereas in fact it's artificial. That's sort of the postmodern approach. Uh, more, of, it has become to some extent I mean, the, the feminist analysis of history. For what, what it is uh, is the Marxist approach, and yeah. that's what Heidegger had in mind. And to the extent that Marxism has deeply impacted postmodernism, including you know feminist uh, strands of postmodernism, um, it's also become characteristic of those uh, attitudes toward history. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I mean, Michel Foucault epitomizes this. Mm -hmm. Finally, there's what Heidegger considers the most authentic relationship to history, and that's monumental history. Mm -hmm. This is the idea of uh, appropriating great events and personages of one's heritage mm -hmm. as symbols that inspire future evolu evolution and development. Mm. The idea that any growth forward into the future, mm -hmm. like the growth of limbs of a tree, needs to be deeply rooted in the earth, mm -hmm. uh, in the earth as in the sense of the soil um, of a certain people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, one shouldn't relate to the great ideas or ideals of the past as if they're mummies. One should look to them for inspiration mm -hmm. um, that will drive further exploration and discovery. But that exploration and discovery requires the grounding of a tradition. And this, this is Heidegger's preferred attitude. He thinks that this is what it means to have an authentic relationship to history. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a person who is facing an existential threat, and even more so a person in a whole society mm -hmm. that's facing an existential threat, mm -hmm. claims their destiny when they uh, act as a visionary who reappropriates the possibilities of their historical heritage mm -hmm. in a dynamic and evolutionary fashion. Now, isn't it the case that Heidegger felt that each of these three approaches to history have their strengths and weaknesses? That's exactly right. I mean, if uh, one is in a period of um, all-encompassing degeneration and decline, then some antiquarian history really wouldn't hurt mm -hmm. as a counterbalance to uh, widespread degeneracy, let's yeah. say. Mm -hmm. But it's not ideal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, all of these, these types of history do have their place. In a, in a world dominated, let's say, by a caste system, mm -hmm. let's say that, you know, genetic engineering mm -hmm. were to converge with certain deeply entrenched aristocratic ideas of, uh, you know, uh, differentiation between various social classes, mm -hmm. and this were to concretize into a new caste system. Mm -hmm. Somebody like Heidegger would say that under those conditions, even an emphasis on critical history would be warranted mm -hmm. in order to liberate us yeah. from that kind of an oppressive society. Mm -hmm. Well, let me reflect uh, this to you. Um, as a person of Jewish heritage, uh, I probably... Uh, different than many people because uh, the Jewish people didn't have a nation of their own for thousands of years. And what I see, and, and it's probably true amongst the many people I've interviewed, maybe a thousand so far, you can find Jewish people who have gone to Tibet and become Tibetan lamas, or who become Indian gurus, or become Sufi uh, masters. Uh, and to me, that's authentic. They're they're expressing something that's an uh, 
truly authentic part of their heritage. I'll tell you why I don't agree with your characterization. Mm -hmm. I would say that those Jews who largely uh, are living in diaspora communities in the West yeah. really exemplify Western man mm -hmm. at this moment in mm -hmm. history. Okay. And, you know, it's been the case that many Jewish intellectuals have been among the leading lights of, of the modern Western world. Mm -hmm. People like Spinoza, like Karl Marx. Einstein. Einstein. And mm -hmm. so... And Freud. And Fre I mean, you, one could go on and on, yeah. okay? So... Uh, I think that what you're really putting your finger on mm -hmm. is the fact that among the most bold explorers of the modern or maybe postmodern epoch of Western man mm -hmm. are people from the Jewish diaspora in the West. Another point that I would make in response to that is that the Jews most certainly did have a homeland for many hundreds of years. They had a great kingdom. And so I would see Zionism, modern Zionism, as um, a form of this monumentalist history uh -huh. that Heidegger is talking about. I see. Uh, that's very interesting. It would lead me to want to uh, bring up your own interest in the uh, revitalization of the Zoroastrian culture. Yeah, I mean, there's a question uh, about whether attempts to revive a heritage mm -hmm. after a hiatus of centuries yeah can really be authentic or at what point it becomes an artificial reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And some people have accused Zionism of that, of being an artificial reconstruction. Right. I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the attempt to bring about a renaissance of Iranian civilization uh, is even more clearly something that could be authentic, that has real roots mm -hmm. extending back thousands of years. It's true that between the Arab Muslim conquest of the Sasanian Empire in the 650s and the rise of the Safavids in the 1400s, you had a hiatus of 800 years mm -hmm. where there was no uh, Persian kingdom or certainly no Persian empire, variety of uh, semi-autonomous fiefdoms, mm -hmm. uh, but you did have a survival of Persian culture. Mm -hmm. and. I would say that uh, you had a similar survival of the Jewish heritage in the diaspora community, and there were Jews who remained in, in what was the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. So I, I really do see Zionism as one expression of um, a monumentalist reappropriation of a historical heritage, and note, of course, that it also fits Heidegger's criteria of emerging from out of an existential threat mm -hmm. and a being towards death yeah. in a very real sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, although I presume Heidegger himself was not a Zionist. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I know that Hannah Arendt, who was his mistress mm -hmm. and dear friend and uh, you could certainly say disciple philosophically in some sense, mm -hmm. uh, was a harsh critic of Zionism. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether Heidegger would have shared her view on that, actually. It mm -hmm. would have been interesting to ask him about that. I'm not aware of, of any interview where he was asked that question. Well, well, before we close our discussion on being in time and, and Heidegger, I think we ought to mention the fact that uh, during his lifetime, he uh, affiliated with the Nazi party in Germany. Yes, uh, Heidegger, you know, was trying to play Plato at Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Plato, during his own lifetime, not only elaborated the idea or the ideal of the philosopher king, he uh, actually tried to turn uh, Dionysus of Syracuse 
a the a, tyrant, a, yeah, the tyrant, quote unquote, yeah. uh, of a Greek city state into the ideal Platonic philosopher king, mm -hmm. and it was a fiasco. There was a revolt against him, a coup against Plato and his influence in the court uh, at Syracuse, and he barely escaped with his life. I believe uh, in the middle of the night by mm -hmm. boat he was smuggled out of. Syracuse and back to Athens. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that, that winds up happening with Heidegger and the party. He has a certain ideal conception of what could come out of National Socialism. Remember also the alliance between Germany and the government of Benito Mussolini in Italy. Mm -hmm. I think that he was imagining a kind of second renaissance, a second type of Italian renaissance, mm -hmm. and uh, that he could play the role of the philosopher king, the, the power behind the throne, as mm -hmm. it were. He was very quickly disabused of this um, this notion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he only spent a little over a year uh, really functioning as a party official mm -hmm. before um, becoming somewhat of a hermit. He, he resigned his position as director of That's Freiburg right. University uh, when he became disenchanted. That's right. And it really was a, a resignation in protest. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we should cover uh, uh, concerning being in time? Um, well, let me just uh, add that uh, the concept of time at play in this work is not only concerned with history. Mm -hmm. um, toward the end of the text, Heidegger gets into a very abstract discussion of how our original or primordial experience of time is radically different from the chronological time uh, elaborated by modern sciences, mm -hmm. particularly physics. Mm -hmm. So this idea of the relativity of space-time mm -hmm. that Einstein and others forward yep. is something that's called into question by Heidegger. Mm -hmm. He sees it as a very useful practical convention that can lead to technological breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. But we are misunderstanding ourselves insofar as we uh, see ourselves as entities encompassed by this uh, post-Cartesian grid uh, of sp a relative space-time. Mm. Our time is a time of our consciousness. And our consciousness uh, is always directed toward the future. In terms of the three modalities of time, past, present, and future, mm -hmm. Heidegger believes that the future modality is more fundamental. And that in some sense, we are always reappropriating our past from out of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll notice that just even in terms of the conversation that we're having, we are always already anticipating the next thing that we're going to be saying and mm -hmm. where uh, each of us is going to yeah. be bringing the other person. Yeah. And if that weren't the case, we would experience life as a series of shocks. <laughs> so the, the, the future does not unfold as a successive series of instants mm -hmm. that are the present moment. What the present is, is the reappropriation of the past from out of the future. Mm -hmm. And being in time as we have it is an uncompleted work. There was supposed to be a second half of this text, which Heidegger referred to as the destruction, or what later winds up being called the deconstruction, of the whole history of Western ontology, mm -hmm. taking Kant, uh, Descartes, and Aristotle as the milestones, and this deconstruction of the whole history of Western thought 
is meant to do exactly that, to reappropriate the past from out of the future and for the sake of the future, to dig through the crust mm -hmm. of various established frameworks of thought in order to reinvigorate um, philosophy mm -hmm. uh, by reaching back to the pre-Socratics mm -hmm. in a way that takes us beyond the moderns. Mm -hmm. Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, it's been a great pleasure to share this time with you and to explore the thinking of uh, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. Thank, thank, thank you so much for inviting me again, Jeffrey. Well, thank you uh, for being with me, and uh, I hope to do many, many more interviews with you in uh, the future. I look forward to that. And thank you for being with us. The New Thinking Aloud, or In Presence podcast, that you have just heard was originally recorded as a video for the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Check out the channel by going to newthinkingalloweed.com.